Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, we sit down with John Vallis, and you know, there's something fascinating going on in the world right now. I don't know if it's just the power of the internet and social media where we're all meeting more people, or there's something going on in the Bitcoin world, but there's a lot of interesting people that are popping up into our consciousness here, and he's one of them. I, I'm not sure how we stumbled up Cross John, maybe it was his interview with the CEO of uh, MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor, who bought a crapload of Bitcoin and just kind of made uh, made all the media rounds discussing why he did that. And John did just a great job interviewing him. Um, or or we heard him somewhere else. I, I can't really recall, but he's just a really really interesting guy. On his bio, in his or the description of his Twitter handle here on Twitter, he lists out truth, freedom, curiosity, possibility. These drive me. And I really enjoy talking to people who have those types of things that drive them. So this is a, a, a fun chat for just me selfishly, perhaps, but I really hope that you get some value from this. We talk about John and just his, his life story. We dive into a little bit of The Sovereign Individual, and you'll hear us discuss that book. So if you're not familiar with it, you'll get a, an idea of what that book's about on this podcast. We dive into Bitcoin and really what is money. And I, and I think sometimes that is something that's very easy to dismiss. Like, why would I concern myself with what money is? You know, I have day-to-day -day bills to pay and I have my job to take care of and I have my kids to take care of. You know, I don't want to uh, entertain myself with your thoughts about money, perhaps. And I can see some someone, you know, having that type of, th or that line of thinking. However, I think in today's world with everything going on, a lot of the uncertainty, a lot of the maybe unconscious anxiety that exists right now boils down, in my opinion, to money. And money and the market can be a source of truth and it can also be a source of anxiety or peace. And I, and I, I truly believe that your deep understanding of what money is doesn't have to come from like a, maybe, a, you know, a, a worship of money, but more just an understanding of how it is so that you can live your life and maximize your ability to live life on your own terms. And that's what we're all about. So when you hear us talk about Bitcoin and money, it's, it's really not to, you know, um, mark or grade who can put the most money in their bank account or something like that. It's more just understanding how does society work? How does money work? How can we create a life where we can live it on our own terms? And to do that, you do need to understand what money is and what it's about. So if you're new to this from us, this is where we're coming from. It's a really key ingredient in being able to live life on your terms. And I just think John does an absolutely amazing job explaining some of this stuff. He's the host of the podcast called Bitcoin Rapid Fire. He just does a really good job on that podcast. The, probably the best way to, to find him is on Twitter. And his Twitter handle is at John K. Vallis. And Vallis is V-A-L-L-I-S. And subscribe to his podcast. Let's give him a review. Give him some feedback if you enjoy this kind of discussion with him. I think we'll bring him back again if he's open to it. Really enjoyed this. And listen, if you are listening to this and you want to make sense of some other things that are going on, specifically in this particular area, the greater Toronto area here in Canada, and you want to understand the real estate market, you can learn on some of the strategies or sorry, about some of the strategies that we're working with, with investors by going to our website, rockstarinnercircle.com. We publish a lot of articles articles on there. We share some videos on there. We have access to different, uh, or you have access to different reports and classes that we share on
on there. So if you're trying to make sense of what's going on in the real estate world right now, and you think maybe an income property, investment property is right for you, you can go to www.rockstarinnercircle.com and pick up a ton of local Canadian-based information that we're using on the streets with investors every day. So that's it for the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are live with John Vallis. And even before I get him to explain his background and how he fell into this whole Bitcoin stuff, we were in the middle of a conversation. You commented on a book that I have over my shoulder here, um, The Sovereign Individual. And I just mentioned that I read it 20 years ago, didn't know what I would really to do with the information. I just put the book down and said to myself, this is something serious. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. And then uh, it started making the rounds again. So now I've reread it. It's just blowing my mind, like, you know, even more so now because of the context that we have. And, and you were just saying how information finds us. And I, and I cut you off. So can you pick up on that? Well, actually, that, that was the exact point I was, I was going to make in that I wonder, you know, you said you read it 20 years ago. Information changes its meaning as, as time passes and the context in which that information is presented changes, you know, and this is the case with even language words take on different meanings, you know, from now or 100 years ago, sometimes it might be slight, sometimes it may be gross, right, so it's interesting to hear you say you read that book and you knew it was significant, but you didn't know exactly how and you put it down, but anyone who reads that book in 2021 is going to be dumbfounded at a couple of things one just at how prescient it was I mean it it articulated so well a frame. Well, let's, let's put it this way. The framework that they present for interpreting history and how it unfolds and how culture and society and politics unfolds is validated because of how prescient their predictions have become. Right. And, and they, they not only were the predictions spookily accurate, but they were timely as well. I mean, in this book, they said within the first quarter of the 21st century. So, you know, from, from 2000 to 2025, this is how we're going to see things play out. And these are the reasons why. And they just nail it on so many different dimensions. So if you're reading that in 2021, it, it, it's given so much more uh, credibility and gravity than if you read it 20 years ago, where some of the things they were predicting may have been unfolding, but maybe not as obvious or apparent at that time. And so that the impact of how that information would land would be different, you know? So um, but yeah, it's a phenomenal book. If people haven't read it, The Sovereign Individual, it's, um, like I said, for me, it was two things. One, of course, it's kind of a, um, well, one, it's a framework for understanding history. You know, a lot of people in this space, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners, and I presume a lot of your listeners are really trying to understand the world. You know, that, that's what it comes down to. That's, that's where our curiosity comes from. That's why we read books. That's why we, you know, have these conversations. We're trying to figure out what's going on and who we are and how, how do we have the two come together in the best way possible. And um, history can seem like a, you know, a disparate series of, of random events, right? But this book in particular, I think provides a really good framework for understanding how technological innovation and how it's distributed influences the structure of society and the nature of politics and the, the, the dynamics of power in a society and the imbalances of, of power. 
um, and how that mediates how history unfolds. And, um, you know, so I've, I've definitely used it as a framework. And of course, I'm, I'm hopeful that the primary thesis of the book unfolds. And that is basically that uh, governments become or jurisdictions have to compete for the capital of the individuals that live within their jurisdiction. And the reason why they're going to have to increasingly compete, which is hasn't really been the case up till now, you're born in Canada and you're a Canadian, you, you have to pay your taxes and all that kind of stuff. But as the cyber economy grows, as people's income is less jurisdictionally dependent or geographically dependent, as money flows across borders more easily, people are less tethered to the places where they were born or the places they were working before, right? If you were working at a Ford factory in the, in the early 1900s, you had to be in Detroit or, or wherever it was. Now you could be on a beach in Thailand and doing your job as a freelancer and being paid in Bitcoin or what have you. And this place has added stress on jurisdictions not to just assume that they're going to have your access to the proceeds of your productivity in perpetuity, but they actually have to compel you or, or not compel, they actually have to attract you through competing services. And we're still in very early days of this. And we may be in kind of one of the darker periods that the book articulates where before there's a competition for capital and people, there's a kind of an attempt so to tolerable. restrain movement. Um, and, and so higher tech, like kind of an, a pinnacle of taxation, a pinnacle of, of restricting movement, after which we'll see jurisdictions say, hey, uh, the best way to get the best people and, and the most capital in our jurisdiction is to offer the best services. So what does that mean for taxation? What does that mean for opportunities? What does that mean for infrastructure? And then we see this, you know, hopefully a free market come to governance, which as the free market does, will um, allow for far better services and far lower prices. And I think that benefits all of us. So it's a great book for kind of uh, seeing where, where things are headed. So I have a question for you on all of that, but I just want to back up for one second. How did you get to do what you're doing right now? These podcast, these podcasts and YouTube videos that you're putting out, where does this all come? Where does this framework come from? Like when listening to you, it's interesting because it's clear that you have spent a lot of time thinking about your own life and you know maybe society where we all head together what's right and what's wrong and how to how to sort through that where does this all come from so you know can you can you tell us a little bit just about your background and how you got to this place now sure basically i'm trying to say you're you're an interesting character <clears throat> trying to figure you out i'm trying to figure you out from <laughs> over here <laughs> well i'm still trying to figure myself out so that makes two of us but um i mean i guess that's actually the kind of the punchline is um you know i don't know why we all have the natural dispositions that we have, you know, obviously there's a, an aspect of conditioning and our upbringing and the environment that, that kind of shapes us. And there's obviously some X factors of, you know, super environmental factors, genetic or, or, or whatever. But um, all I can say is I was always a curious kid and that led me to try to figure things out as best I could. And um, that led me to reading a lot when I was a kid, a, a broad a, a variety of subjects. Um, and I guess that led me to being a little bit more of a contrarian and a little bit more anti-establishment than, than most people. And, um, then most people around you, yeah, your, your, your yeah. family, school immediately around you. Okay. Yeah. You know, like, you know, and I think it's kind of natural. Like if you're reading books about 
and look, I'm not trying to put myself up here, but I'm just saying if, if anyone is reading about philosophy and psychology and geography and history and these sorts of things and their peers are not, you know, there's going to be a natural separation in terms of your, your interests and the activities that you want to participate in. And in any case, I, um, I traveled a lot when I was younger. Um, after high school, I, I lived in Japan for a year. I ended up coming back to do university and then I... Um, traveled in South America quite a bit and um, backpacked. And I, th I basically just pursued what I thought was most interesting. And uh, for me, you know, I was a big Amazon person right from the get-go when it came out. And I was trying to piece together the world. I mean, just as I was just saying with the, the Sovereign Individual book, um, there was nothing but questions. And so I wanted to learn about how business worked, how investing worked, how politics worked, how the, what the process of history was, you know, try to try to piece together what this crazy thing we call the world is. Uh, and that led me to, you know, down a lot of different rabbit holes. Um, and then eventually I, after university, I went to Shanghai. I thought China was the future. I thought Shanghai was the New York of, of the 21st century. And I wanted to work in finance. That was always my, my goal in high school and stuff. And I got a job at the, uh, the biggest wealth management firm there at the time. And so I worked in wealth management for about three years, loved the city of Shanghai, uh, was a great time, but did not like the, um, the industry, I guess, of wealth management. You know, I, I, I was a bit green, I guess, behind the years. I, I thought it would be a bit more, I, I thought it'd be less salesy. It's very, it's a very salesy sort of business. And look, most things are, right? Um, but I didn't like it. I didn't like the people. And I just knew like, this wasn't the place, you know, th this is, this was not stimulating me whatsoever. And so I came out of that. I went back to school. I did a, a, a three-year degree in natural medicine, because I've always been interested in health and wellness and that kind of stuff. And then I worked in a, a, a clinic in Shanghai for uh, two years after that, almost pretty much had the exact same issue. You know, it was more on the salesy side and not enough about the you know, the patient or the client for, for my liking. And I left that. And in, in between that process, I got into Bitcoin, um, was really fascinated by it from a political perspective, primarily initially. Uh, I was, you know, I was tracking Bitcoin, it was a dollar. And I, you know, pains me to say that. But, uh, you know, because <laughs> I, I didn't imagine. take it's a great story, though. It's a great yeah, story. <laughs> well, sure. And I didn't take advantage of it at the time, because I thought, wow, this is great. Because I, I was, very, very well familiar with the issues with the existing monetary system globally and the central banking and how that all that all that works. That, that, was, that was from your finance exposure? No, no, that, that was just, you know, okay. my own my own inquiry, okay. you know, my own curiosity and um, very highly, you know, highly critical of that. And so when something like Bitcoin came along, I thought, wow, this is really cool. Um, but I, I probably didn't think that it had the potential to actually over like overtake or or replace central banking and so i just tracked it and then in 2014 uh i was in bali um and i went to a co-working place there my girlfriend and i at the time and that they were having a talk about bitcoin and i was like awesome like I, you know, i've been wanting to learn about this i've been wanting to talk to some people about it and it had just ended and this girl said like um why don't you and your girlfriend, me and my boyfriend have dinner tomorrow night? I'll tell you all about it. Get you set up with wallet. We'll buy some everything. And I was like, oh man, that's awesome. And she was like, give me your email. I'll email you the destination for the dinner. Anyways, no email came through. So I was devastated for, for, uh, for missing that. And then the very next day we were, we were down in a different part of Bali in the tourist area. And there was a Bitcoin store 
where you could actually go in and, and buy Bitcoin. And it took us like an hour, but we went in and we both got set up with a wallet and we, we put a little money down and we came out with some Bitcoin. And, and from that point on, as I'm sure you know, um, it's a very deep rabbit hole. And once you real, and, and the real rabbit hole here is money. You know, we take for granted what money is. You know, we have a John A. McDonald on the, on the, on the bill and we just think, you know, we, we use this to get bread and to, you know, do things. But the history of money, and you alluded to the Bitcoin standard, um, that's a great initial foray into understanding the history of money and the relevance of the history of money. Um, but once you understand the history of money, once you have context for how money evolves and also the implications of different forms of money, then you really start to appreciate what Bitcoin represents. And, you know, I, I, I often say that Bitcoin is basically just at the bottom of the, the, ra the money rabbit hole saying like, hey, what's up? You know, I'm, I'm the next version, right? I'm here now. Probably won't be the, the version forever, but I think it's a substantial upgrade in money um, that I think will be with us for a long time that I genuinely think is inevitable now, notwithstanding that anything can fail and there's no certainty in life, but as inevitable as something can be. And um, as to how I came to do this, it was kind of like a compulsion. I was taking a year off. I was in Thailand, uh, you know, just with, with my partner, just kind of living. And um, I had done some podcasting in the past when I was in Shanghai in the tech industry. I just like talking to those people and understanding what was going on in that, in that space. And um, it just, my, my fascination with all the different elements of Bitcoin kind of overwhelmed me. And um, I said, I, you know, this is something I want to be a part of. These are the the people in the conversations uh, I want to be speaking to and having. And, uh, you know, it's been a year and a half, I guess. And it, it's been such a pleasure to just be able to follow that curiosity. You know, like you, you mentioned the Maps of Meaning podcast. And that's that's purely arose because I read the book and thought, holy shit, this is, this is such a fundamental and such an interesting book. Um, maybe some of my other Bitcoin homies would, would like to talk about it with me. And so I call up Rob and call up Gigi and call up Richard. And they were all like, yeah, you know, this is, this is a great book. Let's talk about it. And um, that's, such a, that's such a wonderful thing. That's a you know, dream. To, that's yeah, a dream. Yeah, just yeah. To, to not really have to worry about, uh, the, you know, I, I don't have to think about and really anything other than following that curiosity. And, and it's such, an it's such a, a blessing to be able to do that. So uh, that's a little bit of the, the background story. And I think didn't didn't Jordan Peterson over the weekend or last few days didn't didn't he comment on one of the posts about that podcast? He did. Yeah, he 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 tweeted out the the podcast itself and said um, this interesting was a, conversation. This, this or... was a broad and and serious conversation. And serious. That sounds and, like him. Yeah, yeah, serious. Uh, yeah, and then he uh, he he tweeted at uh, Gigi, who was one of the participants. Maybe we should talk. Maybe with the whole group. So. Um, you know, we'll see what's on the horizon. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question about that because uh, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty exciting. And, and I, I don't know Jordan Peterson's work as well as you do, but I can tell why that's exciting. Um, but why, when you, you mentioned something, you mentioned Bitcoin is an upgrade. So I think for, for, for people listening to our particular podcast, some are in the rabbit hole, they're deep in the rabbit hole already, but many aren't, you know, many are, you know, working and families and are picking up maybe their first rental property or even thinking if they should, should or shouldn't do that and trying to figure out, you know, how to financially maybe make a good foundation for themselves and their lives going forward. So when you say Bitcoin is an upgrade to money, 
how should they think about that? Or, or why do you think that? Well, there's a couple of different ways to tackle that question. I guess the most basic is that if you, if you look at money and you look at the properties that have made for a good money in the past, right? Because money has always just been the most tradable good, right? So any, any good in a market, and it could be extremely primitive, the thing that most people want, the thing that most people are willing to trade for becomes money. So a very simple example is in, in prison, right? Cigarettes become the current, as far as I know, I've never been there, but you know, this is, the, the, this is what you see in movies, right? Like prison or uh, cigarettes become the currency. And so that's because the most people want that thing. So you can trade it for new bed sheets or towels or pieces of dinner or, or however it works. And, um, and this has happened throughout human history. And it's real, that's why the the investigation of money throughout history has been so interesting. And, you know, money has been, as I'm sure you and many of the listeners know, has been beads and it's been stones and it's been uh, salt and cattle. It's, been, yeah. it's been cattle. Uh, it's been ledger entries. And so, uh, and, and of course the precious metals and so money and, and, you know, that it's such a deep question, you know, what makes for a good money and it's why money emerged, you know, what, what was the function of why something like a money emerged. And basically we, we used, I, let's say that we had stationary capital, right? So when the agricultural revolution kicked off, people had surplus, right? Let's say prior to that, people would hunt and they would gather and they would eat and there wouldn't be that much surplus. And if there was, maybe it was shared around until it was, it was all consumed. Um, but in, you know, with the advent of agriculture, we started to have surplus, you know, I had surplus wheat or rice or what have you. And once you have surplus, your time, your, your perception of time, especially in the domain of value gets extended. And so then we look for instruments to continue extending that through trade. You know, so if I have a bunch of rice and you have a bunch of apples, well, how much, how much rice is worth how many apples? And also what's the dimension of time in that trade? My rice, if I, if I keep it dry, is gonna keep a lot longer than, than your apples. So how do we mediate the exchange ratios between things? And the fact that we had more abundance from the natural world, from specialization and, and getting more efficient with production meant that we, the value of, a, of, of something that helped us mediate exchange ratios increased. And um, you know, basically we tried to find the an exchange medium that that would encapsulate the longest time horizons of any other thing we would hope to trade so we wanted basically the money to have a longer life than anything we would trade it for because that means we could trade it for everything and so this kind of speaks to the spatio-temporal element of of money ultimately and and by that i mean in order to facilitate what i just described Money would have to be exchange, uh, capable of being exchanged across space, me exchanging it with you and being durable and divisible and all the other properties that would allow us to do that. And then across time. So something that would be able to hold its value across time, right? So uh, if something degraded or if there was no sufficiently, um, if there was no restriction on the growth of its new supply, let's say, that would make it a poor way of storing, of maintaining the value of the initial trade across the di di dimension of time. And that could be with yourself or, or with other people. Does that make some sense? Yeah, totally. And, yeah. and I think it's kind of why, when you have the context of history around money, 
I think it's why to me, Bitcoin finally became so obvious because yeah. it seems throughout history, if there isn't government, I don't know if I want to say manipulation or some force that is saying, John, you must use this as the money. Humans yeah. tend to naturally gravitate towards the hardest form of money. And, and the definition of hard, hardest form of money would just be, you know, the stock is really high compared to the flow and the new supply of the new for, of the new money. Yeah. Um, that humans just naturally seem to say, oh, well, we were using, you know, seashells on in North America, but these gold coins and these silver coins, they look like they're a bit harder. They have a better stock to flow. We're going to start using these and they have these other you know, characteristics and they serve the functions, of course. But humans just naturally seem to evolve to use the hardest form of money. Yeah. So that when I, when, you know, to your point about Bitcoin, just kind of being an upgrade, when you understand that humans just naturally tend to go that way. And I'm making that conclusion from my own reading. I don't know if that's the absolute truth or not. That's just my perception of what my interpretation of history is that it seems like that, that was my aha moment. I, I was like, oh my gosh, like we can't ignore Bitcoin anymore because Bitcoin is the hardest form of money that I've ever seen. And it has the characteristics. It can serve as a medium of exchange if you wanted to. And I think that's only going to happen at the international trade level. Let's face it here. But, but it can do that. And it, it has saleability across space and time and scales. And that was, for me, the, 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 the upgrade moment. I was like, holy smokes. Because yeah. I just had dismissed it. I had friends, John, you were looking at it at a dollar. I had friends, I guess, about five years ago, tell me about Bitcoin. I said, you don't understand. I have to pay the government of Canada taxes. <laughs> I'm not going to take your freaking Bitcoin <laughs> because it goes up and down in value. And when I have to pay taxes, HST or whatever, I'm going to have to pay here in Canada in the business. If it goes down in value, if I collected Bitcoin, but it goes down in value, I just can't pay my taxes. It's like, I'm going to lose. Mm -hmm. And I just, I was kind of caught into just that framework. I never looked at the store of value aspect of Bitcoin because I was already a gold guy. Yeah. I was a huge gold guy, but I had never looked at it from that context. And uh, anyway, I'm getting yeah, off track, I, but I, it's- a I was a big gold guy too, you know, as part of this story of like trying to figure out the world, right? And when I kind of made the determination that the structure of our monetary system was really- you know, perverse, let's say, um, I became a gold bug too, because Bitcoin just didn't exist. Uh, and so, you know, that, and to put a capstone on the, you know, what I was saying is just that, so we looked at money for its different attributes, as you referenced, right? Divisibility and durability and, you know, fungibility, uh, et cetera. And so gold became the best form of money. And one of the primary considerations when, and, and we're talking about the free market choosing a money here. And that's a, that's a very fundamental distinction that is almost lost on people today. People today think that, go, that money is a product of the government, right? And that, that has been the case intermittently throughout history, always with disastrous consequences and always reverting back to a market determined money. And so what we've had for most of time is the market determining a money. And one of the fundamental characteristics of how the market chooses a money is its unforgeable costliness that allows it to have a that allows to the market to restrict its supply. Because that's one of the, 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 just think about it. When you have the thing that's of the greatest value, 
in the market. It can be traded for all other goods. It is the thing with the most condensed amount of value than anything else. Of course, there's going to be more pressure on that thing than anything else to make more of it, right? Because it's the most valuable thing. So a, a, the best money is the one that can um, resist supply growth, right? The one that's re most restricts, and we, we the, a term often used for that is unforgeable costliness. It's very expensive to make more, i.e. this is why gold became a dominant form of money all throughout the world, not because uh, Central America 2000 years ago was communicating with Egypt 2000 years ago. They came upon this by like independently for the same reasons, because they, they each looked out in their natural environment in the natural world and selected the substance that best had, that had the, the best of these characteristics that we've been discussing. And so gold was very difficult to obtain. And as a result, it kept, it, it kept, the maximal limit on the new growth of its supply while maintaining the other characteristics that allowed it to be a useful money. And so we know the story of gold over the last, you know, two, three, four, 5,000 years, you know, probably used as a store of value for 5,000 years into coinage about 2,600 years ago and, and, and on it went. Um, and so on, in terms of Bitcoin, Bitcoin basically uh, on every dimension of money, you know, so it's divisibility, it's portability, it's verifiability, fungibility, and very importantly, it's inelasticity of supply. That's why it is such a leap forward in, that's why I use the term upgrade in money. So just very quickly, something like portability, gold is very heavy to move around. You can't take, you know, more than, you know, a bag full of gold, you know, a little, little sack full of gold coins. It's I was going to say, if you, a, if you have a bag full of it, you're doing good. You know, if you have, <laughs> right, if you have right. a hockey bag full of gold, you're doing okay. Yeah. Right. But the point is, it's difficult to, to transport <laughs> so, yeah, it across, yeah, yeah. across space. And in the modern era, where a lot of things are conducted online, it's even more difficult. And, and in terms of something like Bitcoin, it, you, can, you can send it over a communications channel. And the really important thing to note with uh, a really important distinction is that for gold to be used in the modern era, so we stopped exchanging gold coins a long time ago. And then we moved to notes, right? Deposit receipts. So you, I put my gold in the vault, you know, I get a little paper note for it. I exchange a paper note to you and that made it more easily transactable, but that introduced a third party, right? That int introduced the custodian of the gold. And therein lies the problem. We've introduced a level of trust into that exchange whereby it's not just me giving you a gold coin anymore. There's an intermediary that must be trusted. And that ultimately was the demise of gold because there was a trusted third party. And though that may, that trust may be able to, you know, work for a period of time, the story of history is such that it always gets broken through the course of time. And of course, the most recent, you know, example of that, that people will probably be familiar with is the fact that we were on the Bretton Woods system from, let's say, you know, from 1945, 46, um, in which the entire world went on a, a type of gold standard where they could exchange their US dollars for gold at a fixed rate. Um, and so if you're a country, any country could hold US dollars and in effect be holding gold, but they could just transact with it more easily, et cetera. And then in 1971, the Nixon shock, uh, Nixon closed the gold window and said, sorry, we're not converting your, your US dollars to gold anymore. And so since then, the, the entire world has been on a paper money standard. And uh, one interesting thing about that, um, and one of the reasons why 
exploring money is so fascinating because you get to see what the implications of different forms of money on which society is predicated, what, what, what impacts that has. And just a very simple illustration of that, I'll direct your listeners to WTFHappenedIn1971.com. It's a website that just shows you a bunch of different social metrics um, since, well, before and since 1971. So you can see some of the implications of moving from a hard money market determined, uh, a hard, yeah, hard money market determined monetary standard, albeit somewhat of a perverse one in the Bretton Woods system, but still basically on a gold standard versus the completely paper money standard and what the social implications of that are. And look, I mean, I'm so to finish off that upgrade about Bitcoin, Bitcoin just maximizes every monetary dimension. And as a result of that, it, I think it's the far superior money. And very <clears throat> interestingly, gold grows at about 2% a year. And maybe we find it on the ocean floor. Maybe we find it on an asteroid when I believe the Spanish, you know, took back a lot of gold from uh, Central and South America. You know, that was a that was disruptive actually to their economy because it was kind of like a massive amount of inflation, albeit short lived and things things balanced out afterwards. But the fact is, is that gold supply is elastic. If, if everyone in the world today woke up and said, I'm going to put a thousand dollars into gold. The gold price, the gold price would temporarily skyrocket, but then there'd be so much more incentive to go and find more gold and bring it onto the market. And we'd come to an equilibrium again. Bitcoin's breakthrough is that it's the first ever instantiation of absolute scarcity that we as human beings have ever come across. Its supply is completely inelastic, regardless of the amount of demand for Bitcoin, the supply schedule will not change. It's programmed. And so we know exactly how much new supply of Bitcoin is gonna come onto the market month to month, year to year. We know exactly when that's gonna stop. And when that stops, there will be absolutely no change to the Bitcoin supply. So we will have a completely inelastic money. Um, and so among other things, that means that the added demand has to be represented in price because supply is not part of that equation anymore. And so- um, So your savings can go up in value just on what you said. So your savings can go, uh, yeah, I guess that can open a whole different line of thinking what I just said there. But ultimately, I think you said something that's really important to me personally, because I think some people are driving around thinking, well, I don't, I don't, I don't really want to pay. I don't feel that maybe I need to pay attention to this. I have other problems in my life, but I, I think this is what you just shared about what Bitcoin represents is so important because when you look around North America right now, look at the prices of real estate. They're going through the roof right here in the greater Toronto area. If we don't see 15 offers on a property, it's like shocking to us. You know, property prices have been going up like a hundred thousand Canadian dollars a month over the last few months, Like it's absolutely ridiculous here in Oakville. The median price has gone up 40% in one year. 40% average price is 63 or 67. I can't remember if it's 63 or 67. Can you believe that in one year, one year? Mm -hmm. So I think, and then when I see comments on Twitter from different mortgage brokers or even people we know in the industry, they're like, Oh, what's going on with real estate now? You know, uh, our people are just taking on too much debt. And it's, it, it's almost like we're, you know, in, in, the, in the mainstream thinking, we're blaming the individual for taking on this debt and causing this real estate problem. Mm -hmm. Whereas once you understand what money is, you realize, whoa, 
what you just said. We came off the gold standard with the petrodollar system in 1971. We just have paper receipts. Nothing's backing it anymore. And when that happens, new, humans naturally will tend to take advantage of the system, the ones that are in power, lowering interest rates over the last you know, 25 years to the point where assets have continued to just go up in value and new money is created in this current system, not by people saving and then lending it out. It's new money is created in our system when you take a, a, a loan or a mortgage and you sign that paper, you're literally creating new money out of thin air. Mm -hmm. And so when people drive around, figure out why they can't get ahead, it's, it's, it's because the system is rewarding the asset owners by the function of which money is created. It, it goes to the assets first. Mm -hmm. So assets are going up and people feel like they can't get, get ahead in life because of that. So when I went, when I, when I said to you, the comment of your savings can go up in value, where I was trying to get to where I was coming from was that assets are currently going up in value. But if you have a hard money and you save in Bitcoin <clears throat> as represented in dollars, it's going up in value because the market is setting the price for for this hard strictly hard thing that you're using as a store of value or your savings so i don't know yeah. if i did a good job and what i was trying to say there john but, I, I, but that's I where it. i was coming from where when, when i said your savings goes up in value it's because i feel like so many people get ripped off when their savings goes down in value and i always look at my parents and how hard they worked yeah and, and I feel like their savings, you know, was, was almost robbed. Not almost. I feel like it was robbed. And it, so that's where I'm coming from with that comment. I have yeah. other stuff I want to ask you before we run out of time here. So I, well, but well, do you have anything I'm, on that? I'm I do have something on that, which I'd love to touch on. And if, if the, if you're the time constraints is about me, I'm happy to hang around. Okay. All right. Okay. So, okay. Cool. cool. Um, but there's a couple of important things that you, you touched on there. And I think it goes back to one of the things we were discussing before. And that is that the market is always going to find the best way to store value over the longest period of time, right? So that historical ancient process of humans trying to find a, a method of, of increasing the temporal aspect of their savings, right? So over the longest period of time is unavoidable. The market's always gonna do that. And so when we have a situation like we have today where one, legal tender laws mean we're forced to use the government money, right? That means inevitably that the market is going to find, so each individual market actor, and I don't mean every individual because it does take some knowledge and information uh, and means to be able to do this. But I mean, as a whole, the market will find ways to route around that to store value in a an asset that has a longer temporal dimension than the paper currency that they're forced to use. And so unsurprisingly, since 1971, uh, especially, as even, even the, a lot of people won't consciously know that the money is being debased. You know, they'll just, they'll see the market dynamics happening and they'll say, look, putting money in real estate is better than putting a, like, let's say it's a hundred grand or a million or whatever. It's way, it, it makes more sense for me to put that in real estate than to put it in cash. You know, in cash, I'm getting a low interest rate or maybe a, a negative real interest rate. And in, uh, in real estate, I'm getting 10% a year, 15% a year, 8% a year, whatever it is. So my point is just that that's inevitable. And that's why we see today, realist, and, and we're in a very odd time. And I go back and forth between thinking we're at a really dangerous precipice versus 
maybe maybe the the convulsions that we're seeing in financial markets and asset markets uh, right now will normalize a little bit before the big bang. But the punchline here is that we're we're on an increasingly unsustainable path with regards to how the monetary system has been treated and how governments have abused their powers of money creation. This has happened many times in the past. It always ends in disaster. It ends in default or from too much debt or it ends in hyperinflation. And that's most likely the case when you have a, a, a money printer in the basement. So to your point, and, and again, why Bitcoin is so important is if we accept that the market always, always, always will find ways to increase the temporal dimension of their savings, right? So if they're forced to use some shitty paper money issued by the government, they're going to find other ways to do it. Up till now, it's been equities, it's been real estate, it's been land, it's been rum, art, art, been yeah, art. yeah, 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 exactly. But now, and 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 so there's, it's not hyper efficient because let's say rum might be better than art might be better than real estate, but everyone has different knowledge about all these different markets. So it's kind of disparate. Bitcoin has come on the scene and it is on every single dimension. It is very clearly the best at storing value and extending the temporal dimension of, of value uh, of that value. And so we are going to see a ton of, we're going to see that same market process play out where, where the market selects the, the, the best store of value based on those dimensions. And we're going to see a ton of, of capital flood into that, especially against the backdrop where the manipulation and the devaluation of the enforced form of money, the enforced currency, i.e. Canadian, US dollar, Euro, et cetera, is being abused more than ever. And so Bitcoin will, in my opinion, take store of value. So if, if we accept that all these assets part of the reason why they've been increasing in value is because of what's, what the government's been doing to the money and accepting that the market is going to try to extend the temporality of money as, as much as possible. If Bitcoin does that better than any, any other thing, we should expect that some of the store of value, if not a lot of the store of value components of all other assets are gonna be sucked into Bitcoin because it just does that job better. And so to your point, if you choose to save your money in Bitcoin and everybody else is choosing to do the same, and all other assets, the, the, the store of value component or the monetary premium of all other assets is coming into Bitcoin. Yes, you should probably expect, especially in this period where I would argue this is the distribution phase of a new form of, of money and a new form of store of value like as Bitcoin is. Uh, and that may take place over the next five, 10, 20 years. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. But during that process, you probably, it, there probably is no better way to uh, save your money and, and probably benefit from being early on the adoption curve um, than, than investing in Bitcoin. And the very last point I'll make about that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is I mentioned that a lot of people don't think about how their money is created today. A lot of people don't have an appreciation for the history of money. A lot of people don't understand how markets have previously selected money. Anytime you get a scenario where one entity or one group of people can create money at zero cost and everyone else is forced to use it, the inevitable outcome is one of slavery. And I don't use that term lightly. If you have to, I, you and I literally have to give our time away. Let's say, you know, I work, you know, at a shop or something like that. I have to go, I have to show up every day. 
I have to sacrifice the time that I would spend with my family, with my friends, doing other things I like in order to get that money, in order to put food on the table, roof over my head, survive. If I, so I have to give my time away. If another group of people can just press a button and make that money, you know, create that money, then the relationship that gets established there is, is one of slavery. And I, uh, I don't think that's, you know, and, and I know that's an extreme way to characterize it, but I, 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 I see it as unavoidable. Um, and uh, there's a lot of things to distract us from, from seeing the truth of that. And that you do need an appreciation for what money is, how it's created, how the market has selected it in the past. Um, but if we don't have a free market in money, then someone is skimming off the top. And there's a term for that, and it's called seniorage or signorage. And that's, that's the, the difference between the face value of the money and the cost of production. There's always a small difference. I mean, we wouldn't have gold miners and gold mining companies if they couldn't manufacture and produce and sell the gold for more than the market price, right? Or if they couldn't earn a spread, basically. Um, but we accept that because the spread is fairly small. Let's say it's 5%, let's say it's 10%. But in the case of government money, it's 100% now. There used to be a cost to the paper, but most of it is digital now. So it's a, it's a, it's a ledger entry. And this is how money is created. Or as you said, then it gets pushed through the banking system and it's created out of credit, um, still at no cost. And so uh, that is a really egregious infringement on effectively people's freedoms. And that's why there's such a strong... Uh, thread of freedom and let's say libertarianism for lack of a better word within Bitcoin, because people realize the, the fundamental injustice inherent in being forced to use a money that some people get to, to create for nothing and that you have to sacrifice your time for. And what Bitcoin represents is not only a free market determined money, but one that cannot be stopped, cannot be censored, cannot be intermediated. And that's why it's so exciting because you know, I'll give you a quote from uh, Friedrich von Hayek, a former, or, you know, an Austrian economist. And he, uh, I think it was in the 70s, maybe 80s. He was old at the time. He's, he's deceased now. And he was in an interview and he said, you know, I don't think we shall ever have a good money again until, until we can wrest it from the hands of government in some sly roundabout way. And, you know, he perfectly described Bitcoin because Bitcoin emerged as this thing on the Internet uh, just a little sapling, very small, had no market value for the first year plus, um, and pe because people didn't know what it was. And then slowly but surely, the market came to identify what it was, and more and more people devoted their capital to it as a result of understanding what it was. And here we are today, you know, it's just backed off from a trillion dollar market cap, which, you know, yes, there's trading and there's momentum and there's all this stuff, but the broader story is that a global market global, you know, uh, individuals all around the world are beginning to realize that this is a better form of money. Uh, and it's the best form of money we've ever had. It's a far more fair form of money where the rules are the same for everyone. There's no distinction between, you know, who you are or where you're coming from or anything. And the market seems to be saying, yeah, that is the type of money that we want to have in the world. And uh, I think we're just getting started there. So, um, you know, I, I hope and I think what's happening is people are waking up to the injustice of how the current monetary system works. And that's great. And I see them um, more and more people opting into Bitcoin as a result and um, long may it continue.
You just keep going. That's just beautiful what you're laying out there. That's just beautiful stuff. So uh, couldn't I feel like I feel like applauding after after you went through that 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 talk right there. Yeah, a, a, absolutely. Well, very well said. So uh, um, I guess what comes to mind in some of the things that you just shared there is that you said you know slavery, and I think you're trying to articulate that not trying. You're saying it very clearly that if something doesn't change, more and more of our time is just stolen through this process. Mm -hmm. If we circle back to the sovereign individual, um, do you, you know, I, I, I guess none of us know, but could we be in that period? You know, I think you mentioned, I, I think you mentioned earlier, we might, are we in that little bit of that dark kind of window where there's this transitionary period and none of us really know how long it's going to be until this kind of free market opens back up and, and, and creates a lot of opportunity for, for all of us. Um, and may, and perhaps a, you know a better lifestyle for for all of us, um, but just following you, you know, when your your talks with Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy, um, and what he's doing today, I think City came out with like a hundred page report on on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, I only got to like page five or six before I had to stop to to, to jump on the, on this with you. But I mean, they they obviously put some real thought into that report. That doesn't look like something they just threw up in a day. Um, so that coming from them, and then you see somebody like Kevin O'Leary, totally different character, um, but who said Bitcoin was, I think he used the word garbage. I think he said garbage a few months ago or whenever he said it. And then I think today he admitted, or somewhere I thought I saw the headline today that he's got 3% of something into Bitcoin and that he's changed his, his thinking. Do you feel, and, and then if you look at companies like BlockFi that are doing lending, Right, and then there's a Canadian uh, company that I don't know well, Ledin L E D N uh, dot I O. Mm -hmm. um, we're actually booked to talk with one of the co-founders there just to learn a little bit more about what they're doing. So these, if you're not familiar with BlockFi or or, or Ledin, um, these are basically like banks where you can deposit your Bitcoin and earn interest, and not one percent interest, but like you know six percent interest. So do you with you know with your talks with Michael Saylor and what he's doing and. Tesla buying it and City putting out this report. Do you think perhaps things are moving faster and 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 it's not five or ten or fifteen or twenty years until there's some kind of change in 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 the financial system? Is it a little sooner? And I know you don't have the crystal ball. And and maybe this question's coming from I'm hoping it's sooner. Like maybe I'm just trying. Like John, please tell us it's going to be okay. <laughs> what, do, what do you think? Or is it going to be like I have a 19-year-old son and and a, and a 14-year-old daughter, and you know maybe it's going to be in their lifetime where this kind of changes dramatically? But what what are your thoughts? Well, look, we we, we all hope it's going to be as soon as possible. I mean, if you think this thing represents a fairer, more just um, system that you know on which a a market and a society that's more prosperous and peaceful will be constructed. Like, yeah, how can you not want that to happen as soon as possible? And, you know, just on your last point, I think it's worth noting that part of the reason you mentioned your, your parents, you know, any, anyone who just saves money, makes money, saves money, puts it in the bank. The reason why this is so such an egregious harm is because this process that we're talking about of the market recognizing that the, the money as a result of being created at zero cost is not a good store of value. It gets siphoned into other places to preserve as much of that value as possible. As this monetary policy that, that central banks get on with uh, continues, it harms people um, 
that that don't take action to preserve their capital, right? So you're you're kind of and that frustrates hum- me to no end. I don't yeah. know why, but in my core, oh, it, it should. That- frustrates me. It's fun. It's fundamentally unfair and unjust. You know, you're just someone who works and saves. You don't want to push yourself out on the risk spectrum and become a stock picker or a real estate buyer. Like you, you, you do your work, you save your money and that should be enough to get by in life. And then whatever else you want to layer on, that's absolutely up to you. But just by virtue of doing that in this current monetary system, you, your value gets stolen from you at an alarming rate now. Uh, via the debasement of the currency, and you, you know, and so I, I find that a, a huge injustice. And again, why Bitcoin will stop that? Why the the rules will be the same for everyone, and no one can manipulate it? So, if my presumption is that when Bitcoin becomes dominant global money, and I think you're right that it'll become a store of value before it becomes any form of transactional currency. <clears throat> um, but when, it, when it's fully monetized and distributed around the world, and let's say all the, the government monies have failed and gone away, then I suspect the price appreciation, the deflation in Bitcoin will roughly equate to global productivity on an annual basis. So let's say it's two, three, four, five percent Well, the value of Bitcoin will have to increase to account for the added productivity of the world on an annual basis. So if you're a saver, you, you know, if, if you're just working and saving in Bitcoin, then your purchasing power goes up by three, four, five percent a year, or at the very least, it remains constant. Although I think there will be some continued deflation. So, you know, that's great. That means you're not harmed by just being a humble saver. Um, and that's the problem with the 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 growing inequality we see today is because of the way that the monetary system is constructed, constructed and operates. We get this growing divide because you have the people. First, that get the you know the the government created money earlier, but let's just say in general terms, people that are capable and able to put it into financial assets to help pre- preserve the value, and then those that are you know don't have enough or live paycheck to paycheck or whatever and and hold their 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 savings in cash, that one is being devalued and the other one is keeping pace or growing in value, and so you get this big V shape, this big diversion between haves and have nots. And of course, that creates a lot of social problems. And I think the last 10 years, and there's a lot of examples that you can point to where that has been the case. So that's, um, you know, one of the reasons, another one of the reasons why I'm so adamant about Bitcoin, um, you know, ascending to its its rightful place. But to answer your question, how long this is going to happen, um, you're right. Credit markets are starting to develop, lead and BlockFi, stuff like that. You know, you want to be really careful with how you engage with these services. As we often say in the space, not your keys, not your coins. If you don't hold the keys to your Bitcoin, then you have a claim on your Bitcoin. You don't have Bitcoin and companies can go away. Bitcoin has never had any security breaches. It's ironclad, but companies that operate in Bitcoin, exchanges, et cetera, have been hacked. There's been frauds, things like that. So you want to be very, very careful and the, I suspect, I think that the best play right now is to buy and hold Bitcoin, right? And to custody it yourself. I know there's ETFs that just came on the market in Canada. There's a ton of inflows coming into them. So it is being financialized, but, um, and, and Grayscale in the United States has, you know, something like 30 billion under management. But if you don't hold your Bitcoin, um, it's not your Bitcoin. And anything could happen between you and getting your, you know, between when you lend your Bitcoin out and getting it back. And I look at it in a couple of ways. One is, let's say, annualized returns over the last 
10 or 11 years for Bitcoin have been about 200% a year. Um, do you wanna, to get the extra 6% that you're being offered for interest, is it willing, are you willing to risk losing them entirely? You know, I, I, I think that's a tricky- Yeah, that's, that answers itself. Yeah. Right, it answers itself. <laughs> and so I think that what Bitcoin is doing is bringing the real cost of capital back to credit markets. Because mm -hmm. as we all know, the government's manipulation in the interest rate market is so egregious right now mm -hmm. because they need to be able to borrow money cheaply. And they're trying, you know, it's like the saying goes like, you know, uh, what would the government do if an asteroid was heading towards Earth? They lower interest rates. You know, it's like if you if you have a, a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And that's the, pretty much the only lever they have, you know, and, you know, lower interest rates, create money creation. And so what I think is happening right now is in the cryptocurrency market, and Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency that I um, is, think is, is meaningful, um, we're seeing a, a more accurate cost of capital emerge. Having said that, I think these markets will continue to mature and develop. And for the time being, I think the buy and hodl um, approach is the best. And in terms of timelines, you know, there's, there's been a lot of discussion about this. The stock to flow model is out there. People take a technology S-curve approach to determining the timelines on this and, and comparing it to the telephone and the internet and the television and things like that. Um, I tend to think this will be mostly, uh, the next 10 years are going to be the bulk of this. Um, and I think within the next 10 years, we have a big chunk of global adoption um, and let's say, let's say for flexibility, 15 years, like I think in 15 years time, we have greater than 80% global adoption. But the thing is, is that it could happen much faster than that. And I'll give well, you a 15, couple 15 years is fast too. Like 15 well, I years agree. Is, fa I, is fast. I agree. Yeah. yeah. But I, the reasons why I think it could happen much faster are, are twofold. Uh, one is we are seeing such irresponsible behavior on the hand of the governments in terms of their treatment of money and debt. I mean, look here in Canada, look how much debt we've racked up on the federal balance sheet uh, in, in 2020 and moving into 2021. And the reason why that's important- We've added, we've added a trillion since 2019. Yeah. A trillion. And, and the reason why that's important- On a total of about 1.5 trillion. Everyone's arguing about what the exact number is. But just for context, on a total of 1.5 trillion in total debt in this country, we've added a trillion of that since 2019. Yeah, it's it's insane. And and what it it backs the government into a corner in that you, you have to keep interest rates low to service the debt and not default. But if you keep interest rates low, you you get you let the inflation genie out of the bottle, right? Because money is far too cheap and more of it gets created than should be created. More more gets created than the market is dictating should be created, even if we're accepting this very perverse you know, uh, monetary system that's in place. So if we see uh, fiat currencies under increasing stress around the world, I mean, in the US, I think 40% of, of uh, dollars were created in the last year in, in 2020 or up to this point. I mean, these are numbers we've never seen before. Any Anyone who's listening can go to uh, the Bank of Canada website or the Fed website, although I think they've they just last month stopped reporting on on M two M two. You can see a parabolic increase in the money supply. So all of those, you know, that's just to say that those factors 
and the degradation and the speed of the, de the degradation, de degradation of the existing um, fiat currencies around the world could really accelerate the necessity for people to move into Bitcoin. Because up until now, it's been more of a capturing an opportunity sort of game. Like, okay, I see this new money is emerging. I see why it has value. I want to be early. I think we're moving into a period now where and this is why I get a ton of uh, people uh, contacting me to ask me questions about this stuff. People are like, even people that aren't financially sophisticated, they see what the government is doing, how much money they're spending, how much debt they're taking on, uh, what's happening to the prices of, of goods and services in the economy. And they're saying like, something's not right here. And I feel like I need to protect myself. Is Bitcoin a way to do that? And just by ask, that's the you just ask that one question and that's usually the way people start heading down the rabbit hole and not everyone's going to go super deep but they're going to say hey bitcoin has a limited supply i can control it and i can you know nobody is going to restrict my access from it and it's had 12 years of appreciating uh you know it's, it's appreciated for 12 years and if you look at it on a log scale graph it's pretty much bottom left to upper right okay you know i'm comfortable with putting some of my savings here in order to try to protect them against the really wacky stuff that governments are doing. Um, so the the external macro landscape, I think, could be a reason why all that happens a lot quicker. Alternatively, or not or coinciding with that, is I think the narrative of Bitcoin is really close to, you know, getting out again changing, coming, changing. Well, I think the genie, the, the 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 narrative genie is coming out of the bottle. It's becoming really simple and really easy. And you combine that with the de-risking that has happened in 2020, whereby the top, you know, the people that uh, are most admired, let's say, on Wall Street, i.e. Paul Tudor Jones and Druckenmiller Miller and et cetera. And in the corporate world, Elon Musk, you know, it, I know that Michael Saylor wasn't a, a very well-known figure, but he's certainly becoming one. In almost every domain, getting into Bitcoin is being de-risked reputationally. And by that, I mean, two years ago, if you were a CFO or you were an asset manager and you brought Bitcoin to your, your board meeting, you'd get laughed out of the room. Now, maybe two months ago. Right. <laughs> and, and, and now you, you may get laughed out of the room for not having an informed opinion on it. Uh, so everyone is going to need a Bitcoin strategy. And so now that it's been de-risked and you can have the conversation, that's the important key here because look, there's been so much you know, Bitcoiners are a hardcore bunch and there's been a ton of really great investigation from a technical, economic, financial, social, cultural, all the way down the line of this phenomenon. And this conversation has been happening in Bitcoin for the last 12 years. There's so much good content out there that now if you just genuinely ask the question, what is this thing and, and how should I be involved? You're spoiled for choice in terms of understanding it. And We've we've been poking holes in this thing or trying to for, you know, the last 12 years and we haven't been able to do it. And I think that's the inevitable conclusion that people come to. You layer on top of that the greed element, you know, from Wall Street and from, I mean, everyone's greedy, right? We all want to make more money. Um, so it's it's OK to talk about it. And you've got, you know, the the greed component that's always that's always there. And you've got the the necessity to look at alternatives in order to protect yourself from all the irresponsible behavior on the, on the hand of governments. I think all that comes together to make the case really easy and, and very convincing. And 
you know, if, and that's kind of the, the question mark, that's, that's who knows, right? Because that could mean that this plays out over five years and not 15, you know, because the, the, the if main- If you listen to your talk with Greg Foss about credit default swaps and what's happening and he, and, you know, he lays out a case for a possible contagion in, in credit markets. I mean, if something like that happens, it could be tomorrow where there's an event that I'm not saying takes Bitcoin to hyper Bitcoinization tomorrow, but, but, but there could be an event tomorrow that really brings Bitcoin to the forefront of everyone's narrative much faster than any of us thought. Exactly. And, yeah. and so I think that's, I like the way he puts that out there, that it's a probability thing, you know, and if you, if you just play the probabilities in this sea of chaos, and I think you say it well, where there's an underlying unconscious anxiety when it comes to money that people know something's wrong, but many of many people can't put their finger on it. And I, and it might be Jeff Booth who, where I first heard it, he said, Bitcoin's like a life raft. Absolutely. You know, if you know, you can kind of grab onto that life raft in this sea of chaos. And I think it's just a nice thing to have out there for all of us. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, th this, this could all kick off very quickly and, um, and I agree, you know, I think that's how people are seeing it. They are seeing it as a life raft, also an opportunity. And, and really, if it's both, then all, all the better. And, and once the mainstream media really sinks their teeth into this narrative, which I think we're getting pretty close to, uh, well, look what happens when people get into Bitcoin. I mean, I, I always tried, I always try <laughs> to remember. It's an endless, you, endless. <laughs> yeah, I, I try to remember that you and I and Michael Saylor were not special at all, right? We, we're... It's not like we are Bitcoin looking out at the world. We are, we are just people that came into this and started learning about it and had our perspectives changed. And as a result of that, had our behavior changed in terms of how we deploy our capital or how we manage our, our money and that kind of stuff. And it's not lost on me that a lot of people that come into Bitcoin and, and you know, really start to get it, it's not, they don't treat it like any other asset. It's not like I'm going to put 5% of my money into real estate and 3% into bonds and 50% into equity or whatever it is. It's like people really go deep into this thing. I mean, look at Michael Saylor. He, you know, in, in, in May or March of 2020, he went down the rabbit hole and he put 500 mil, you know, basically all of his corporate treasury into Bitcoin, buys it now on a monthly basis and is borrowing or issuing convertible debt in order to acquire more. And I can tell you that most Bitcoiners are the same way. I mean, they're scrounging pennies in their couch to try to find more money to put into this thing because they realize how special this thing is and how much of an opportunity it is to kind of stake your territory in this network in the early days, right? And do so to as much as possible. That's not financial advice. Everyone has to figure out what kind of a, a allocation to make to all the different things that they, they invest in in their life. But it's not, Bitcoin is the foundation of your savings, right? It's, and I think people are starting to see it that way versus something that they're trying to derive, you know, greater ret returns or yield from like in the equity markets. And once that, I think we're close to seeing that get out. And uh, once that gets out, uh, I think the rush into Bitcoin could be, could be pretty extreme. And, and I, I feel like a great talk for your audience would be, uh, the one between Michael Saylor and Ross Stevens of Stone Ridge. Yeah, I listened um, to that one. You're right. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll, Ross, I'll, I'll, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, you know, Ross is a you know uh, traditional investor, for lack of a better term, and he articulates the case oh, for Bitcoin and his so rationale well. extremely well. 
uh, not in maybe some of the more hyperbolic ways that myself or other people in the space might sometimes do, and not in such an esoteric way, but um, for people that just want kind of the, the straight lace, like this is why a rational investor is interested in Bitcoin. And also interesting to hear from his perspective, the demand that's coming online through the firms that he runs, uh, very compelling. And so, I, you know, this, this could happen very fast. Although part of me hopes that it doesn't happen too fast because it does Agreed. take time Agreed. And, and, yeah. and, and people can be, uh, it can be disruptive and I don't want it to be too disruptive because that's going to cause social problems in itself. Uh, agreed. Okay. I'm going to give you an impossible challenge here because in about five minutes, I need to go pick up my daughter. So I, 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 I so, but I, ha, I can't, I can't let you get away without asking you this on, on your maps of meaning podcast. You said, something that really kind of stuck with me you, you, and it was summarizing Jordan Peterson's book there, or I, I don't know if this was your own notes or direct quote from the book, but you said this, so I, I, I won't be able to give you enough time to do this justice, but you said the market is a type of God. If you approach it or engage it or engage with it in a particular manner, you will succeed or fail predicated on how you engage. And this mm. is true on every scale. I love that. Because the way I interpret that, and it's maybe this is too superficial, or but for my own life, I try to live by a set of principles. And here at Rockstar, we share with everybody that we work with that you say, you know, when you work here, just we don't, the, the, the mission statement is actually just these three principles. Always do the right thing. If you screw up with somebody, do the right thing. If it costs us money, you individually or us as a business money, but it's the right thing to do. You don't even have to talk to myself or Nick. Just do it. Just do the right thing at all times, mm -hmm. give 110% and treat others as you would treat yourself. That's the three. And as ridiculous as this sounds, I heard this in my twenties from a, a football coach <laughs> that was uh, giving it uh, as a, and, and it was a sales director who was playing a motivational video. And I was trying to figure out integrity and principles in my life. And I was all confused by it. And, and I, and, and, and I heard those three things. And I thought, that's how I want to live. I always want to just live. I just want to do the right thing. And not that we're always perfect with it far from that, but that's yeah. the goal. And when, then when I heard you say this, I thought, wow, that's just a much more powerful way or context to kind of look at how to live. Mm -hmm. And so I know it's an injustice to give you two minutes or three minutes to talk about this, but that paragraph, because <laughs> <laughs> you could spend two weeks talking about this, but what does that exactly mean to you? Or how do you try to live, you know, with that? How do well, you try to engage with the market? Well, first what does all, it mean to you? Take this wherever you want. And, and I apologize for the shortness of time. Yeah, here. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best, to, my best to be brief. But kudos to you for uh, kind of aligning with, with those principles or virtues that, that you identified when you were younger and embodying them in the business that you conduct. Because... Uh, you know, I think we need more of that. And one of the issues I have with the way that the market is structured today is that because there's so much intervention, because there's so much perversion in the markets, i.e. by the entities that control money, you know, and that they can manipulate it to such a high degree, the market is not a pure reflection and doesn't dole out rewards as it should. A very simple example of this would be, uh, let's say, you know, a company should fail because it didn't, it didn't manage its money well, it didn't do its job properly, but it gets a bailout from the government. 
And so now all that capital should have been dissolved, recycled, and found a home in more efficient and effective uses of that capital, right? So the entrepreneurial process should take place, uh, but it couldn't, right? Because now, because an, a supermarket entity, i.e. the government with basically unlimited money came in and said, no, for whatever reason, politically jobs, what have you, we're going to, we're going to keep you alive. And so we have so much to, and, and perhaps there's no greater distortion than the cost of capital, the interest rate, right? Because that's supposed to mediate the time preference of all market participants to say, this is how much capital there is. This is how much uh, impulse or, or, or drive or demand there is for deploying capital for productive uses. And then finding a balance between the two, this is the cost of that capital. That is co almost completely gone. And that means that the market we have today is not a true reflection of both the amount of capital held by individuals in the system, nor their demand for deploying that for productive uses. And, uh, you know, I, I, the genesis of, of that comment was basically twofold. One, well, let's say this. Just say it. <laughs> well, we were we were dealing with with such you know big topics in that book, and we, we were kind of discussing God as the the structure of reality, and and what Jordan Peterson is trying to explore in that book is that over the course of human history, all the different years of us observing our behavior, acting in the world, and reiter you know iterating on that process, you know ad infinitum forever certain modes of being, certain types of behavior were found to be the most beneficial, you know, between the individual and the collective, right? Like, so what is the, the absolute best balance of uh, behavior that's serving the individual and behavior that's serving the benefit of the collective? Like what's the absolute best balance to strike there? And uh, you might infer from that, that there's some, something about how our brains work and the structure of reality is what mediates, is how that success is defined, right? How, how could it be any other way? I mean, we're, we think we kind of exist in a vacuum, but some, there's something that dictates that those two things are successful at that synthesis for some reason. And I'm not invoking like a religious dogmatic sort of God here. I'm just saying that almost like physics determines that if you throw a ball at a, you know, with a certain amount of force, it's going to go so far. And I think there's what Jordan Peterson, the case he makes is that there's an underlying structure that kind of dictates outcomes based on inputs. And that's what a, a market is, right? And what a market does is it, it assesses all the inputs, you know, how you act in the market, what you create in the market, et cetera, all the different details. And it's the thing that determines rewards, determines success. It's the gatekeeper for all that. And um, that's why uh, I kind got of- Got it. So what you put in, the quality of what you put in is the quality of what you get out. Yeah. And it's kind of the gatekeeper for, for determinant success. But the last, I know you got to run. The last point on that is the reason why it's so important to have a, a market predicated on a fair, incorruptible money is because if you don't, and in, in the case that we have now, the God is corrupted. Right. So it's not doling out uh, success or rewards in the proper proportions or to the proper people. And so, you know, I, 
I, I think that's the best way to put it. God yeah, has become yeah, corrupted. Yeah. And if, if it's predicated on a sound money that's incorruptible, that genuinely reflects the will of each individual participant without dilution, right? So when I act in the market and I spend my money, there's no intermediary that's, that's, that's uh, like fumbling or, or distorting the data of my precise input into the market then the market is a far greater reflection of all the collective participants. And when rewards are doled out and when success is, is determined by the market, it's a, it's, it's a pristine reflection of the, it's a high fidelity reflection of the, the collective hive mind of values, wow. let's say. Wow. And so uh, that's why I, I made the analogy to, to God. Yeah, got it. Yeah, that's, that's a that's beautiful a tough one to do it. in a few minutes. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, but you did well. You did well. I apologize for doing that to you. I just couldn't let you get off. I just wanted to talk to you about that so badly that I couldn't let you get off without asking you that. So I apologize for this short time, but you did that well. You did that well. So thank you. But uh, how can everyone listening or all of us support you? Is it subscribing to your you you know YouTube channel? Like what what? How can we support you? You tell us. Where can we find you? How can we support you? I mean, I, I don't have any formal requests. If people are interested in uh, hearing more of my stuff, uh, the podcast is called Bitcoin Rapid Fire, and it's much of this type of conversation that we've we've been having. I talk with people um, that are quote unquote Bitcoin plebs, uh, which basically just mean anonymous accounts on Twitter with very few followers. And, and it's been amazing to get to interact with your quote unquote, you know, normal person and just get to, to witness the insights and the transformation that has occurred almost across the board in people as a result of really starting to understand Bitcoin. I mean, it's been one of the most gratifying aspects of this whole journey for me. And then of course I speak to, you know, the, the more well-known people as well and, and have those conversations. Um, and then, you know, on Twitter, my, my handle is John K. Vallis, J-O-H-N-K-V-A-L-L-I-S. And, uh, you know, hit me up anytime. And uh, I love interacting with people. So we'll, we'll put links to your YouTube channel, the podcast and your Twitter handle in the show notes for this episode for anybody listening. So we can get to you. So uh, I appreciate that. And Tom, look, I, um, I think you're doing an awesome job with what you guys are doing. Uh, it's been great to get, you know, a little bit, you know, more throughout this conversation, hear some of your backstory on what kind of principles and values you've conducted your life and business on. And, you know, this is one of the things that excites me the most is not only that Bitcoin is growing and people are coming into it, but the values represented in Bitcoin. And I touched on this in the maps of meaning conversation as well, seem to be either attracting or trend or imbuing those same values in the people that come to understand it and interact with it. Um, so it self-selects in a way, but it also may have a transformative component. And that just means that these conversations happen more often and that more people are out there, uh, you know, for lack of a, a more nuanced way of saying it, doing thing, doing the right thing. And it's, it's so great to see because that is what transforms us and brings us to a better place as, as individuals and as a, a, a society and culture. And it's so exciting to see, man. So kudos for all the stuff you're doing. And, and uh, it's been a real treat to talk to you. Thanks, John. Thanks for saying that. That means a lot coming from you. Totally appreciate that. And you keep doing what you're doing. Because as I said before we started, I don't think we were recording yet. There's a lot of us who value what you're doing and you might not hear from us all the time. So keep doing it. So I, we, I appreciate yeah, that. You're very bringing much a and, lot of value to the And table. I will yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thank you. 
Hey everyone, it's Tom again. Hopefully you enjoyed that chat. If you want to find John, you can, you can reach out to him on Twitter or follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at John K. Vallis. So that's John K. Vallis. Vallis is V-A-L-L-I-S. Or you can find his podcast and subscribe to his podcast. It's called Bitcoin Rapid Fire. So that's Bitcoin Rapid Fire. And if you're listening to this and you want some more information about the real estate market, real estate investing, you can find more information from us at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.